He is literally reigning in heaven, but someday he's going to fulfill every promise. And that's why the disciples, the apostles asked on the Mount of Olives, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because God can't lie. He keeps all his promises. He will someday literally reign upon the earth. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, A Marriage Made in Heaven. Pastor Carl is teaching three truths about this wedding. Yesterday we saw that the bride will be beautiful, and today we will see that we as the guest will be glad. Revelation chapter 19 verse 9 says, Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. You meet a person who's an atheist, just lovingly tell him, You're really not. You know there's a God. They do. Why? Because his invisible attributes, his eternal nature, it's all seen through the things he has made. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Then he moves to specific revelation in verse 7 of that psalm. Let me read it to you. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then in the next verse, this is the verse that John quotes, verse 9 of Psalm 19. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So no one can ever question or challenge the fact that God will only act justly because God's judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, for he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So here's millions of untold saints in heaven who are singing that great message. God has judged the great harlot. Notice the second quotation. By the way, if you're new to the Bible, when you see that change in typeset, at least in the New American Standard, different publishers do it different way, and it goes to all caps. That tells you it's an Old Testament quotation. And the second quotation is from the book of Deuteronomy. It's a partial quotation. It's part of the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses is sung on three different occasions in the Old Testament. Most memorably, when they cross the Red Sea, God splits it in two. They walk between a wall of water. Then Pharaoh and his army, who had evilly treated the people of God, they're all drowned in the Red Sea. And so he's quoting that and saying, just like Pharaoh and his army cruelly treated the people of God, even so Babylon, unrighteous Babylon, would treat these these saints in an unworthy way. And so they're praising God for his wrath. Now understand, at this point in the Revelation, if you know the book, no one else is going to be saved. Man has hardened his heart beyond all possibilities No one else will be saved. Now, again, we don't think so much about praising God for his righteous, just acts, but we should. Look at verse 3. And a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And so, again, typically we praise God for his love, his grace, his mercy, his glory, But here they are praising God for his unrelenting, terrifying judgment 
that is about to come for divine justice. And that's a good thing. God's justice is true. It is righteous. And by the way, it is entirely predictable. It's not whimsical. doesn't fly off the handle like we might. It's totally predictable. It's always in response to sin. And so here they are. Look at verse 4. You go to the third stanza of this great hallelujah. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they're a category of angelic beings, fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Now six times in the Revelation you meet the 24 elders. And there are some Christians who think, well, there's just the second coming. We all go to heaven. There's one big judgment, and it's all done and over. And they very sloppily handle the Scripture. And then there are some Christians who think that we'll be here for the time of the Great Tribulation. When, as we'll see this morning, no, God has to take us up to prepare his bride to bring us back. And so we won't be here. And so who are these 24 elders? Well, the post-tribulationists or the amillennialists, both, they just say, well, these are 24 angels. These aren't angels. They're called presbyteros. These are elders. And they're sitting on thrones. You never see angels sitting on thrones. Sitting on a throne to rule and reign with Christ is only promised to the church. And elders typically are older gentlemen. And by the way, angels never age. And while angels do wear white and white garments, it's more commonly an expression of believers, and angels never wear crowns. Crowns are only promised to the church. And so if you remember back in Revelation 4, these elders who are representative of the church receive crowns. And there are five crowns that are given to the believer. And one of those crowns is for those who love his appearing. And so if there's not a love in your heart for the return of Christ, there's something wrong there. And so these are not angels, for that matter, neither is this the people of Israel, as some have tried to postulate. Israel has been under judgment. This is the time of Jacob's trouble to bring them to their knees to say that Jesus is Lord. These are God's men. Right out in the margin, would you, next to this verse, Psalm 106, 48, because I want to highlight two heavenly words that these 24 elders are using. Amen. Hallelujah. By the way, in the Old Testament, this is a quotation from Psalm 106:48, where they're brought together. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say, amen. And it's the word hallelujah. We interpret it, praise the Lord. The L-E-B, the Lexham edition says, amen, uh, praise Yah. And again, it's the word hallelujah. Now, amen is another of the most universal words. Hallelujah is perfectly universal. Amen, well, it's inflected differently. Like if you heard some of the Russians and Ukrainians who were here for our World Missions Conference, they don't say amen, they say amen. But it's still, it's the same Word. And the word amen is used in two ways. It's used before a statement is made to underscore the importance of the statement, or it's made after a statement is made to basically give your affirmation to that statement. So, for instance, Jesus said, Truly, truly, 
I say to you that he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has this moment eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Those two words, truly, truly. Now, in our English Bibles, most English translations say truly, truly. Most other Bibles in the world don't translate the words. They just say, amen, amen. That's literally what it says, amen, amen. Why do we say truly, truly? Because it's a different usage of the word amen. It's put in the front. In other words, when Jesus wants to get your attention, 25 times in the New Testament, Jesus says, amen, amen. In other words, what I'm about to say, listen to, because it's critically important. But when you place the word amen at the end of a statement, it takes on a different nuance. Again, words find their meaning in context, just like in English. A trunk Are we referring to what's in front of an elephant? What's at the base of a tree? What's over a sailor's shoulder? What's behind a car? All depends on the context. Well, when the word amen is used at the end of a sentence, you're basically saying, I agree, so be it. And so that's how it's used here. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen. Hallelujah to the great truth that God had just revealed that Babylon has been judged. And by the way, if you're a little reluctant to use these words, this is the language of heaven. Now, they can be abused, and we can say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. When I go to India, they they love hallelujah. They just say, hallelujah, and everybody goes, hallelujah. I noticed when one of our missionaries from India was here, he said, hallelujah, and I think he expected a hallelujah, but nobody said anything, except maybe sham up there. Anyway, uh, but uh, in either case, sometimes it's abused. Sometimes amen is abused. Years ago, when we met over in the other worship center, what is our fellowship hall, we had a lady there one day, and just about every word I said, she said, amen. I'd say something, amen. I could have said, Satan is God, and she would have said, amen. (laughs) I mean, she was just like kind of a blind amen. So I had to gently tell her, I said, you know, it's a little distracting. Look, if your heart is overflowing and you can't help but say amen, that's good. I don't like to uh, like force amens. It should come from within. It's an overflow, but you don't want it to be mindless any more than you want to use the Lord's name in vain when you say hallelujah. And so in verse 5, this is a command, and a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. So this is a command, and it's, of course, it says, um, Um, a voice came from the throne. So this is not the voice of God the Father or God the Son. They're obviously not giving the command to praise themselves. This, no doubt, is one of the angels giving directions here to the millions of people. And the command is for these believers in heaven, these bondservants, these slaves who fear God, who revere God, the small and the great, meaning every category that man can create, the high and mighty and the unknowns, give praise to God. And then verse 6, I heard something like the voice of a great multitude. And like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. This is the fourth and final hallelujah in this chapter. And John tells us that it sounds like a great multitude. 
I remember my dad as a young man taking our, his eight children. We went to Niagara Falls and we went on that little boat ride and I think I was about eight or nine years old. It was so loud you just had to kind of shout to hear the person next to you. You go to one of these stadiums where there's 80, 90, 100,000 fans and they get all wound up. And I mean, you can hear it, you know, hundreds of yards away outside the stadium. That's really what's happening here. Like the sound of many waters, like the sound of many peals of thunder. All of heaven in unison is saying, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Now, literally the Greek text reads, the Lord omnipotent or the Lord almighty has begun to reign. And that's important because there's a future dimension to the reign of the Messiah. We pray in what we typically refer to as the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is literally reigning in heaven, but someday he's going to fulfill every promise. And that's why the disciples, the apostles asked on the Mount of Olives, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because God can't lie. He keeps all his promises. He will someday literally reign upon the earth. Now that's the wedding announcement. Now we come to the wedding. You say, I'm ready for my note-taking outline, Pastor. All right, pull out that pen. Ready? Three truths about this coming wedding. First, the bride will be beautiful. The bride at this wedding will be absolutely beautiful. And there are a few events, I suppose, on earth more special than a wedding. And I suppose there's no more special day for you than your own wedding day. And throughout history, there have been wedding ceremonies and wedding attire and wedding celebrations in virtually every culture across the planet. And there's all kinds of purchasing and planning and uh, praying and maybe I should add stress. And then finally, the the wedding comes, right? Uh, And notice verse 7. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, another reason that we're given here to rejoice and to be glad is because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And that's one of the reasons this great multitude is filled with praise, because the marriage of the Lord has come. And very often in Scripture, God likens the relationship of his people to a marriage. For instance, in the Old Testament, Israel is called his wife. Most of you know that at least from Hosea or Isaiah or the prophet Ezekiel. But in the New Testament, the church is described as betrothed. And there's a difference. Right now, we are only betrothed. The marriage is still in the future for the church. We are betrothed. And so this betrothal is about to change into a marriage. And so the imagery is going to change. You see, in Bible times, there was basically four events when two couples came, to, uh, two people came together. One is there was the betrothal. Then there was the formal presentation. Then there was a ceremony. And then there was the great reception or feast that followed. Now, we have a little children's rhyme we used to say and kind of edge somebody with, you know, we'd see two people who liked each other. John and Katie sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Johnny in a baby carriage, right? Well, understand that's not the way it worked in biblical times. 
fact, it doesn't work that way today, even amongst Orthodox families. It's not first comes love, then comes marriage. It's first comes marriage, and then comes love. And that's an important distinction. First, you make a formal commitment to a person that we're going to see betrothal is referred to. And unlike an engagement that can easily be broken, a betrothal was a binding agreement in Scripture. There are four people in the Old Testament who are called betrothed, and yet they are referred to as husband and wife, though the relationship had not yet been consummated. There is one couple in the New Testament that are described as betrothed, Joseph and Mary. Joseph is called the husband of Mary, but the relationship had not yet been consummated. And that's why when Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant, wanting to obey the law, he assumes she had been unfaithful, but because he loved her, he's going to put her away secretly. He's going to write a certificate of divorce. And so because only Jews practice betrothal, so the exception clause in the Gospel of Matthew. If during the betrothal period, before the relationship had been consummated, one of the parties was unfaithful, that relationship could be broken, the contract could be canceled. And so very often in biblical times, parents and rabbis were engaged in the process of bringing two people together. Remember Isaac and Rebekah? It says that Isaac took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. He'd never seen her before. It was all built up, all described. He's described, and God brings the two together, and she becomes his wife, and then she loves him, and he loves her. And by the way, that's often how it happens today amongst Orthodox families. I was speaking to my friend yesterday, Hanak Teller in Jerusalem, and um, I said, Hanukkah, how, how many marriages now have you officiated over? And he said, well, over 200. And by officiate, they have arranged dates. And so you'll get a couple families together. And, of course, because he runs all these yeshivas and seminaries, a yeshiva is a male seminary. A seminary is where a female studies the Bible. And he has a special emphasis in working with a lot of seminaries where all these women gather to study the Torah, and they will get together and they'll describe, well, you know, I think uh, Isaac over here would be a good fit for your Bathsheba. And um, they kind of put their heads together, and then he's, there's a special term for the rabbi who brings them together on their first date. And if you've been with me to Israel before, you look in these hotels, and you see these Orthodox Jews, Jewish men, young men in their 20s, often early 20s. And they're meeting a woman for the first time. They're in that public place. And many times after the first date, they get married. Now, they both have a yay or nay. But that's how it's done. I said, well, what's the divorce rate like? Well, he said under, you know, one sect of Jewish people, they have a zero divorce rate. Under the broader categories of the Orthodox, he said, sadly, we have a 5% divorce rate. I said, well, that's better than America. You know, he said, yeah, you're, I said, we're 53%, 53%. 
And so that's what's going on here, is they're, they're betrothed. And so Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together to be with child. They're called husband and wife. And so what does a woman do during the betrothal? What does a man do? A man leaves, and what does he do? He goes and prepares a place for his bride. Now, when the agreement is made, there's a purchase price. He has to be able to demonstrate to the father of that bride that he can take this young woman and provide for her. And so there's a purchase price. And by the way, when young couples come to me and they want me to marry them, I won't marry them unless he can demonstrate on paper that he can support her. And if he can't do that, I said, well, you know, you can go to the local magistrate and he'll be happy to sign your document but I'm not in the business of marrying people. I'm in the business of building Christian homes. And I want you to be successful. I don't want you to fail. And so very much the same, there was a purchase price. And then he would go and prepare a place. And it was during that year period that the bride basically proved that she was pure and undefiled. Then he would come. There was a great ceremony. Maybe we'll study this if we look at Matthew 25 with the parable of the ten virgins, and it usually took place at night, and so on and so forth. And then they go back to the father's house, his father's house. And that's when the relationship is consummated. So what did Jesus do? He agreed with a purchase price. And he reminded us of that great purchase price, did he not, at the Lord's Supper? This is the blood of the new covenant. With his body and blood, that's the purchase price. And he said, hey, look, I'm coming back, but right now you're in the betrothal period. And so Paul said this to the Corinthian church. He said, for I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Right now, just like the bride would prepare herself for her husband, the church is to be prepared for Christ. You know, you get into a discussion. I was in a discussion with a young woman and it wasn't like five minutes into the discussion. She told me she was engaged. I said, well, tell me about the young man. She couldn't stop because she was in love with him. And if you're betrothed to Christ and you're not looking forward to seeing him in heaven, either A, you're not saved, or B, your heart is out of fellowship with God. Now, sadly, biblical prophecy is one untaught area in Holy Scripture. But one of the rewards that God gives are for those who love his appearing. Why? Because when you love and long for the appearing of Christ, what do you do? You get ready. You prepare your heart. You want to live faithfully. You want to serve the people of God. You want to live in holiness before the Lord. And so here in verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. And of course, the bride that is pictured here is the body of Christ, born-again believers. And if you've taken my course on ecclesiology, it's available at the Institute of Biblical Studies, searchthescriptures.org. You know that the word ecclesia, church, is never used of a building, only of people. This is not community Bible church, technically. Now, we say that because it's a modern-day usage of the word. We don't really go to church. We are the church. This is the meeting place of community Bible church. And collectively, 
We are the body of Christ, not just locally, but with the whole universal church, all born-again believers. And so the bride is giving glory and honor and praise to the groom. Why? Look at it. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. So another aspect of the betrothal was the price paid by the groom. In this case, it was the blood of the Lord Jesus. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. He's referred to here as the Lamb. Christ gave himself for the church, the scripture says. We've been bought with a price. You were bought with the blood of God. Please understand that when a woman is pregnant, the blood that is flowing through the little baby in her womb is not the blood that is in the mother's veins. Paternity suits years ago were determined by whether or not it matched the father's blood. But Jesus didn't have a human father. He was sired by God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God overshadowed Mary's womb. And the blood flowing through the veins of Jesus was the blood of God. You said, I didn't know God had blood. He did when he was here on the earth. And so Paul states it plainly in Acts chapter 20 that you were purchased, the church was purchased by the blood of God. It's holy blood, it's precious blood. That's the purchase price. He has left, where has he gone? To prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many dwelling places. Mansions, the old King James says, the word mansion in the 17th century meant a room. Today it means something entirely different. In my father's house are many rooms, you could say. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's the rapture. He's going to take us back where? To the father's house. And so this is the promise. He's going to come for us. He's going to take us to the Father's house. Why? Because he's prepared a place for us. And when we get there, what is he going to do? There's going to be a time of evaluation where God looks at our service to Christ. There's going to be a presentation where the bride is presented to the Father. Again, this slide pictures the big scheme of things. Uh, The rapture takes place. The bema, the judgment of the just, unfolds in heaven. And then the marriage of the Lamb takes place. Now notice verse 8 here. It says, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So Christ's bride has been robed, the text says, in fine linen, bright and clean. Three descriptive words. First, fine linen. That speaks of an expensive, valuable cloth or robe, just like a bridal dress is often very expensive, and women want to spend many times a lot of money. Uh, It bothers us as men if we're paying for the wedding, but secondly, her bridal dress is also bright. It's the word lampos. We get our English word lamp from it. It's bright, it, it, it's shining. It, it's, uh, it, in addition, third, it's, it's clean. It's pure. In fact, in Revelation 4 and in Revelation 7, it's described as being white. Why is it that in Western cultures, a bride will wear an expensive piece of cloth that's bright, that's clean, that's white? Where do they get that from? Right here. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 020. 
One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.